it is my great joy to be able to share uh, eight, short, eight short verses uh, from the latter part of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Jerry spoke to us last week about wisdom and the significance of that. And as I look at these eight verses, I'm going to land, as you can see on the screen, on two words and two mathematical concepts. The two words, as you can see, are temple and wisdom. And then the two mathematical concepts or ideas are 70% and two times. And let's dive right in. It, the theme that I would put on this this morning is the idea that people and human nature uh, is unchanging, and yet it's not unchangeable. When we think about the gospel in life, that, that idea about who we are, that people are unchanging but not unchangeable is really what's driving the way I'm thinking about this passage. I don't know about you, when I, and I so appreciate the com constant commitment we have from the leadership here at the Ridge to be pushing us to be spending time in God's Word. But, and this may seem odd to you if I'm the one standing up here talking about God's Word, I struggle sometimes to make time to get into God's Word. I struggle sometimes when I read it with distractions. I forget what I read. Sometimes I read it and I go, what? I have no idea what that means. And instead of doing the work to wrestle with it, it's easier for me to go, I'll figure that out later. Uh, another thing that I wrestle with a lot, it's easy for me to do, is to forget that every person who wrote and contributed to this book, the people to whom they were writing and the people about whom they were writing were real people, just like you and I. It's easy to forget that. And so this past week, one of my goals as I did a long read through the book of 1 Corinthians again, was just to remember that there was a group of people who that we think of them now as the Corinthians. We usually think of them as having these two numbers in front of their names, but the Corinthian people, they were real people like you and I. They had families. They had friends. They had homes. They had stuff they had to do to make a living. They had to make ends meet. They had to respond to authority in their lives. There are probably things that they like to do and probably things they dreaded doing. They had their opinions, their preferences, their favorites. And some of those things, like all of us, we have our opinions, preferences, friends, family, home, things we have to do, make ends meet. We're 2,000 years separate us. A lot of technological advances separate us. But they were real people. And it was really important for me to think about that and realize I'm not that different. My opinions and my preferences and my ideas, some of those things, they're little things. But sometimes when they get bigger, I know in myself the tendency sometimes to allow my preferences to be so strongly held as to the point of excluding somebody else. Or just thinking, I really don't want to hang out with that person because they, they don't roll like I do. And we've already seen in the opening passages that have been looked at over recent weeks, that was alive and well in this church body 2,000 years ago. And it's the reality that although those 2,000 years separate us in many ways, people are unchanging. The good news of the gospel and the gospel in life is that we are not unchangeable. I'm sorry if I'm offending any of you who love grammar. I do too. Not unchangeable. It's a double negative. And the beautiful news of not unchangeable is that it means our human nature can be changed. So though it is unchanging, as the years go by, the great promise 
of the gospel is that when we respond to it, our nature can be changed. And I want us to hang on to that as we think about these different words. Just going to jump back and read very quickly verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now, I want to zero in on the word temple. And to do that, I want to just ask you a quick question, quick show of hands. How many of you, to describe what you're doing here on a Sunday morning, have ever used the phrase, I'm going to church? How many of us have ever? I figured probably most all of us have done that at some point or another. Even though I also think most of us in here recognize that in the true biblical definition, church is not a building. It's not a geographic place. The few times we see the word church in the New Testament, it's the Greek word ekklesia. It means a called out group of people. And even though we all say, I'm going to church. How are you getting to church? Who's driving to church? We're thinking about the place. The emphasis biblically is on the people. Now, I want to point that out because I want us to be really clear about the word temple. Uh, if you have any Jewish friends or colleagues, or as we do, uh, family, extended family who are Jewish, you may have heard uh, Jewish people in this day and age talk about going to temple. That is a relatively recent use of that word um, for actually going to a synagogue. It's within the, what's called the reform movement of Judaism, and it's only about 200 years old. Uh, if you go back to the time we're talking about in the New Testament, uh, we see the word synagogue all over the place in the New Testament. Jesus would go to the synagogue. Synagogue is a Greek word that means bringing together, and the emphasis is on people. Uh, synagogue was the place for men to assemble, for human beings to assemble, to pray, to read the scriptures, to teach. The focus was on people, much like the word church, ecclesia, is on a called out group of people. Very different back in their time the word temple would never be used for the word synagogue. And I just want to be clear about that, that we, because in our day and age, again, if you have, if there's any possibility of anyone in here knowing someone Jewish who would say, oh, yeah, we're going to temple to describe what they would do on Shabbat or Sabbath on a Saturday to go to a synagogue, that's not the temple we're talking about here. There are actually two words I want to look at uh, for the word temple. There's a few different words that get used for that in the New Testament. One of those, as we'll see on the next slide, is he'iran, is the best I can pronounce it, he'iran. And that's talking about the entire temple complex. So some places, when you're reading through the New Testament and you see the word temple, there are some places, like Mark 13, 1, where it's talking about the entire place, the temple mount, all the buildings, all the porticos, the porches, everything. Mark 13, 1, as he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, Behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And it's entirely appropriate that Iran would be the word used here because this unnamed disciple is just blown away by how beautiful it looks. Gorgeous. And he's talking about the whole thing. That's one of the words for temple. That is not the word that's used in this passage that we're looking at this morning. Another word one of the most important that is used is up there right now, naos, N-A-O-S. And as you can see, this is the inner sanctuary. It's the holiest place where the image of God was found. And naos is a word 
that could be used apart from our scriptures. In almost any ancient religion, there was a temple where the little g god, the image of the god, was found in the naos, in that, that one part where the image of that god was going to be revealed to humanity. And that's what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 6.19, where Paul is writing about sexual purity. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple, a naos, of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And he's referring to that deepest, innermost part where God is revealed. And he's talking about that in the context of pursuing sexual purity. And he says, uh, the Holy Spirit is not, don't you know that you have that from God <laughs> and that you're not your own? You're a temple that belongs to somebody else. It has a different purpose. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, writing to a different group of people about unity within the body, as he's doing to the Corinthian people. He says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with all the saints. You've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy naos, a holy temple, that inner sanctuary where the image of God is going to be revealed to humanity. That's what you're growing together into in the Lord in whom you're also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. In, and I'm not going to read it, but if you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter uses similar language. He doesn't use the word temple in that passage, but describes us as believers, as living stones, again, being built into something. And so, I'm trying something new this morning, and I'm going to pay the price because I've got to put my password back in. Uh, technology is a beautiful thing. Dun, dun, dun. If I can do it with this keyboard, let's see. Got it. Uh, the other powerful thing about this is that when God is speaking, or when Paul is writing, and God is speaking through him, and he's using this word temple, naos, uh, it's singular. And so if we go on and look back again at the passage from 1 Corinthians 3, if you click to this next one where I've underlined it, again and again, he is saying temple, singular. Paul is not saying to all the people, you are all a bunch of little temples. It's kind of like what's written on all our coinage and all our paper money, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And that's a reference to the idea of the United States being united. But in one respect, it's very fitting and appropriate for what Paul's saying because he's writing. Uh, I, I was so, I get geeked out over this kind of stuff. I use a different apps and study tools, and I found one this past week that actually let me figure out where pronouns, whether they were singular or plural, this, this is the kind of stuff that makes me incredibly happy. And, uh, and everywhere you see the word you up here, these are all plural pronouns, which is so cool, because what that means is that Paul is saying you, all of you as he's writing to the Corinthian people, but also as this applies to us, you, plural, are a singular temple. The article in front of temple is a temple. Uh, and whether it's a in some translations or the, it's singular. So out of all of you, us, you are one thing. 
You are this temple, this holy of holies, this inner sanctuary designed to reveal the image of God. He says, don't you know that's what you are? Guys, you are designed to show who God is. It's clear as we look at this, there's also a powerful statement, two very powerful statements, actually. I'm going to talk about the destruction one in a moment, and I'm going to jump to the latter one where God says, the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. This, to me, is one of the great mysteries of this passage, that we, I don't know about you, uh, you don't have to raise your hand to this, but I, will st- I have no problem standing up here and saying, I often do not think of myself as holy. I rarely think of myself as holy. I don't think of myself as holy. I know my heart. I know my mind. I know the stuff that comes out of my mouth, the things I do that I've regretted. And yet, God says, that is what you are. It is an active being verb. It has already been proclaimed about me and about you and all of us because of God's presence in us. This great mystery that he actually says, you are already what you need to be to do this and to be holy. And it's partly because he treasures the presence of his holiness in us. He says, if any man destroys this, they will be destroyed. Now, when I think about that word destruction, because the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD physically by the Romans, it's easy for me to think of this as a physical destruction. But as I dug into this, the reality is in this context, what Paul's getting at really has more to do with being corrupted from within being corrupted from within. And it makes me think, well, how would that happen? And we go to the very next word and the very next couple of verses. It's a lack of wisdom, the wrong kind of wisdom being present. He goes on in verse 18. He says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise. They are useless. Wisdom. Now, one significant piece of common ground that you and I share with the ancient Corinthians is the fact that we are good at deceiving ourselves. We're good at deceiving ourselves. In fact, one of the things I know about them, and I know about you, and I know about myself, is that all of us are really good at continuing to welcome the thoughts and the advice of the one person who's been involved in every bad decision we've ever made. I'll say that again. Taught to me by a guy named Andy Stanley out of Georgia. He said, there's one person. You continue to welcome the thoughts and the advice of one person who's been involved in every dumb, foolish, bad decision you've ever made. You're looking at that person who's been involved in all of Scott Berthel's bad decisions. And guess what? (laughs) you're thinking you're exempt, I'm looking at the person who's been involved in all of your bad decisions right now. And if you're thinking, like, oh, when I was looking at Jerry, you're looking over there and going, he was in my, no, it's you. Because we're good at deceiving ourselves. And the Bible tells us that in so many ways, again and again. If we look at this next slide, just real quick, here are three different scriptures. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. Who can understand it? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. Or Proverbs 3, 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. And I could go on. 
Last week, Jerry spoke about the gospel and life and the significance of wisdom. And as he said last week, human wisdom is when we put ourselves on the throne of our lives and we exclude God and the gospel from having any influence over the affections of our heart, the thoughts of our minds, the words of our mouth, the actions, decisions we make. And as Jerry said, the gospel devastates pride. It devastates pride. And it teaches us that humility and wisdom have to be linked with one another. Right when we think we've got it all going on, that we've learned all there is to learn, that we could never be surprised by anything else, God, at least I found in my life, God is faithful to remind me that that's not the case and to humble me and to remind me that there are two kinds of wisdom in the world. There is earthly, worldly wisdom where I allow myself to sit on the throne or there's godly wisdom. Now, Paul goes on in this passage to reach back into the old, what we call the Old Testament scripture and share a couple reflections. One of those, the first one where he says, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. He's actually referencing Job chapter five. And he's quoting, uh, I actually added a few more verses here. He's quoting uh, Eliphaz the Temanite. Now, this is a great trivial pursuit moment if you like that game. Uh, it's good to know the names of the other two friends of Job's that went. Anybody got them off the top of their head? Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite. Uh, and I, not showing off, I would not have known those, and I had to look them up about 13 times before I could even remember. So you had, see, and I even got to look it again. Uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they hear about Job's circumstances, and they're broken for him. Somehow they connect with each other, and they go to meet their friend. And they are broken when they see him. And they sit with Job in total silence for seven days and seven nights. And at the end of that period of mourning, Job gives voice to his pain, his sorrow, his frustration, his questions. And Eliphaz is the very first of the three friends to speak. And much of what is spoken in chapter 5 recorded for us is about the fact that God is just. And this is just one small taste. So that he sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. He captures, and that, there's that phrase, he captures the wise by their own shrewdness. The advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. And there's so much more in this chapter of Job that Paul's referencing to say that God is just. And where we think there's worldly wisdom that's going to take effect, God will, will deal with that. Psalm 94 is very similar. In fact, it was almost, again, I'm going to share a few different verses from this one. Uh, it made me smile. I think I've probably read Psalm 94 before, but I was grinning this week at the fact that the word stupid is in the Bible, and it's used pretty intensely here. Because again, this if you look at your subtitles in your Bible, this probably is going to talk about how God will avenge his people. God will bring justice for his people. Pay heed, you senseless among the people, and when will you understand, stupid ones? <laughs> he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge? Now, this bold print part here is different than how Paul has framed it in this passage from 1 Corinthians. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. 
the way Paul framed it in his letter, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. The point of all this is that God is just. In the same way, he says, if you corrupt the temple from within, if you destroy the temple, destruction will come back to you. We know all the way throughout Scripture, it is one of the steady underlying principles of the way the world is designed and revealed to us in God's word. And it is, you will reap what you sow. You cannot avoid that. It doesn't matter if you're going to follow Jesus or not. That is a principle that's baked and built into this world because God is just. Martin Luther King Jr. is the one who's quoted most often as saying, there's others who have used this. He said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The arc of the moral universe is long. Sometimes it's so long, it doesn't look like it's bending anywhere. It just, we see injustice. We see the evil flourishing, and we see the good cut down. And you go back into the scriptures thousands of years ago, and those same questions bothered men. Why is it that evil seems to flourish and the good are cut down? What is going on? And we're reminded again and again, God will bring justice. The ark does bend toward justice. It is coming. And Paul is so clear about that. When I think about this, though, I wrestle a little bit with, well, I'm told, and if you think about where we've already been in 1 Corinthians and the number of places wisdom has been written about and wisdom and foolishness, God's going to take the, the foolishness of this year, of this world, and so on, all these different things, it begs the question, how do I know if I'm being wise or foolish? Am I being wise in my own eyes? Am I deceiving myself? I want to take you, and this is one of the places I would encourage you to flip to in your Bible if you're following, you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. Go to the book of James real quick. And if you're using a copy from the chair in front of you, James chapter 3, it's found on page 179. James chapter 3 is a fairly well-known passage of Scripture because of what it describes about the tongue. But we're going to go all the way to the end of it, to the last five verses, because James also does us a great service in talking about two different kinds of wisdom and giving us some clues about how to know what kind of wisdom we're walking in. He writes this in verse 13, chapter 3, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And then he says this, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering. It's without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I love the fact that he finishes with that emphasis on peace. He's given us all these great descriptions, both of worldly or earthly wisdom. You see, when we remove God from the throne of our life, as Jerry said last week, and we put ourselves on the throne, we exclude God, we exclude the gospel, we end up with the kind of things described in this passage. But when we walk 
in godly wisdom, biblical wisdom from above, we're given all these descriptors of what will happen. And the fruit of it all, as you can see, again, we just said a few moments ago, none of us in this world, whether walking with Jesus or not, can avoid the principle of sowing and reaping. It's alive and well. And as it says, that the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If we go back and think then about the passage in 1 Corinthians, where Paul does this little transitional maneuver, he's just been talking about the temple and saying, you are the ones who will bear God's image in unity with one another. And then he says, you can only do this if you're walking in wisdom. Don't deceive yourselves and remove God from the throne. He's got to be present on the throne of life, of your life. He then says very quickly, uh, let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. And in a sense, what he is doing is saying, uh, if you don't do this, and you get all wrapped up in your allegiance to a leader and your loyalty to a leader, or if you get all wrapped up in your own personal preferences about what should be happening within the body, uh, you're introducing tension that does not belong in the body. You're introducing conflict that does not belong in the body. And as you argue or defend or align yourself with certain elements of things like that within the body, you're really tearing at the very fabric of unity that's designed to mark the temple of God. Earlier in verse 9, Jerry covered this last week, uh, he says very simply to the people, you are God's field, God's building. He uses two metaphors to describe the body of Christ. And again, staying in those metaphors, he's basically saying one way to introduce corruption into the temple in a sense, thinking about being God's field, it's almost like you're sowing seeds of weeds in God's field. A field is designed to produce a harvest that nourishes and feeds people. But if you're going to continue to be loyal to one leader and not another, or align yourself only with one person here and ignore others, and do these kind of things, you're planting weeds in God's field. Or... To stay in the analogy of God's building, it's like knocking holes in the walls. We've done so much, and again, it's a metaphor. You think about how much work has been done in recent months and years to revamp this space. Could you imagine walking in next week and just seeing there's holes in the drywall? Some of these boards have been pried off. People have damaged it. And again, the idea is when we align ourselves with our preferences, and we hold so tightly to those, we're not walking in the way we're called to do that. And Paul says very simply, he hits at one of the core elements, which is the boasting in men. And then he tr quickly transitions into why it's not worth us boasting in men. And what I love about this passage is not that it concludes with a heavy emphasis on God's justice, God's wrath. Those are real things. <laughs> we know that. This is where I would say our, our chairs should have seatbelts, and I should say to you, make sure you're buckled in, because this part is so amazing, and what comes next? Listen to what he says next. No more boasting about men. 
And then he says, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Now, John Garmany was teasing me at the front end on the 9 o'clock. And I reminded him, I don't have a graduate degree in Greek or Hebrew or anything like that. I just, I'm a word geek. I love it. I want to tell you something, what Paul means in the original Greek when he says all things. He means all things. Scott Berthel, O ye of little faith. I thought, I know I've read this passage before. And I look at it, and I'm going, wait, all things belong to, to me? Surely that's some... So I dig in and start looking and reading all these different things. And when he says all things, he means... Say it with me. All things. Everything. Like I know that, but I didn't know that. I think I got it, but I didn't get it. All things. Now, if you're sitting there this morning and going, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm now wealthy beyond my wildest dreams, or at least I'm going to be because all things are coming my way. Uh, I think our body knows enough to know the idea of the prosperity gospel. First of all, it's so offensively named, it should not even have the word gospel in it, but it does. But the prosperity gospel is not a thing. It's not reality. And this is not promising you material wealth, even though all things does include all material things. It is not promising us wealth. So if you're getting really excited going, this is good news, the news is better than that. The news is better than that, but that's not it. Actually, I think what's more likely for us, you could be sitting here this morning and going, all things, the world or life, Somebody must have gotten, forgotten to tell God about me because it doesn't feel like that's how it's working out for me in my life. I almost think it's easier to go the other direction maybe and think the burdens of my life are such, I, this doesn't mean anything for me. And I want to be clear, in the same way, it's not promising material wealth beyond your wildest dreams Paul is not promising a life that is free of problems or pain or periods of stress and difficulty. What Paul's getting at is the breadth and the depth of the gospel and the gospel in life. So I want to take a moment and just think about what do these different lines really mean when he says all things belong to you. First of all, he lands on people. And he says whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas the gospel, and what you're going to see in all these, I hope, will be the reality of the gospel brings freedom. People in the Corinthian church were aligning themselves with different leaders, and they were expressing loyalty only to certain leaders, and factions were starting to develop. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. The gospel frees you from that. It's bigger than that. It's bigger and better than that. And it will free you from ever having to defend a leader. It will free you from the fear or distress that could come when one says, somebody says, well, I'm now leaving and going, or when somebody passes away. 
You don't have to worry about that because the reality is every leader finishes at some point. They go somewhere else. They pass away. The gospel is bigger. The gospel means more than any one person could ever give voice to. And you are now free from that. So it doesn't really matter who your preference is, folks. Instead of gripping on tightly to the preference for one leader, time to let go because all things belong to you. He goes on and he says, the world or life, those are two pretty big statements. All things belong to you, all things in the world, all things in life. I love this quote from Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian and pastor. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. I love it. I love the way he captured biblical truth in this, that the tiniest little square inch of the whole world, Jesus is sovereign over all of it, and he says, that's mine. That's mine. Not in a selfish way, but in a way that simply, that's his domain. He owns it. He cares about it. I've been convicted many a time in my life when I get frustrated with stuff. And it could, and when I say stuff, there's a nice generic word, pretty big, covers a lot. It could be things within the life at home, just trying to work out details of how we're going to get one person here, somebody else has got to go there. It could be things at work. It could be things sometimes within the body. Sometimes it could be the huge issues and problems of the world, something that's on the other side of the world. It's easy for me to say this phrase, throw my hands up and go, I don't care. And I, for me, for Scott Berthel, that has been tremendously convicting where God has taught me, oh, no, 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 no. And I saw that in a new way this week with this passage that Jesus says, I care about all of it because the gospel is that big. And actually, the gospel gives me the freedom to care about everything. Now, can I resolve an armed conflict on the other side of the world? From here, no. Can I pray about it? Yes. That detail that we're discussing around the table at school sometime that I'm just thinking, why are we talking about this again? We talked about this 10 years ago. We talked about it five years ago. This should be solved. I am so tired of this. I don't even care. No. If two people are talking about it, the gospel gives me freedom to set aside my own wants, preferences, to lean in and go, Help me understand why this matters to you. I have a difference I can make in that moment. The next word threw me. Paul says, all things are yours. Beyond leaders, the world, the life. And then he says, death. And that threw me. Because at least when he says, all things are yours, the world and the life, and it sounded pretty positive, and all of a sudden he says, death. I'm going, what? And it, he taught me something deeper. I knew this. If you'd asked me two weeks ago, does the gospel win out over death? I'd say, well, yeah, absolutely. But seeing it in a new way, all things are yours. All things are yours, even death. It made me back, it brought me back to a conversation I had in May, mid-May 2010 with my mother. 
in a tiny little restaurant on Red Arrow Highway in Sawyer, Michigan. It's a conversation I'll treasure as long as I remember it. My mom had been diagnosed with cancer. And sitting at dinner at this restaurant probably would have been a better conversation to have at home. I was there with her to care for her for a week and also to talk about how we were going to take care of her affairs when she passed because she had a diagnosis in April and they said it's going to be a very short time period. And at dinner that night, I asked her, what do you, basically, how are you feeling about facing death? Probably not best to ask her that in a restaurant, but I did. It's just the way the conversation went. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but I can simply tell you, and my mom is not the only one. I've had the opportunity a few other times in people with people who have responded to the gospel who could then basically look me in the eye and say, I own this. They never used that phrase. My mom didn't use it. Other people I've known didn't use that phrase. But in a sense, they said, I own this. Death belongs to me. Not because of anything they did, but because they belong to Jesus. And it's amazing to realize again in a new way what that looks like when the gospel brings freedom even from death. I would say to you that I've known the gospel brings freedom from death, but this passage teaches me that in a new way. The ownership we have over that. And death in all its many physical form or many forms, not just physical. But every sin leads to the death of something. We're told that also in James in the family tree of sin. Sin will always lead to the death of something. And yet, forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration can help that be resolved in such a way that reminds us we own it. Paul goes on to include a couple other things. He said, all things present or things to come, all things belong to you. When I think about things present, all things to come, and again, was reading about that and looking at that, uh, my mind was drawn to a devotional I read years ago. And as I joked with the people in the 9 o'clock, I don't mention John Piper just to make Jerry happy. Uh, he's another pastor who is, uh, his words have meant a lot to me at different points. I want to share with you uh, these words from a devotional app I've used. To me, it's a great summary of what Paul's getting at when he says, all things belong to you, the present and things to come. He writes, God's grace is ever cascading over the waterfall of the present from the inexhaustible river of grace coming to us from the future into the ever-increasing reservoir of grace in the past. And I love this. He says, in the next five minutes, in the next five minutes, you will receive sustaining grace flowing to you from the future, and you're going to accumulate another five minutes of grace in the reservoir of the past. We're standing under this waterfall of constant grace flowing. And Paul says, uh, all things belong to you, the present and the future. A lot of that is because of, and I like how John Piper puts it, this phrase, this idea of future grace. God is faithful. When I look at these final, this final section of verses, and you can see I've drawn a blue line here on the slide. When I look at the things at the top, these are really, in a sense, the benefits of the gospel. And the gospel, again, it, it is so outlandish. Let me just say it again. 
how outlandish it is that if someone was going to try and create an idea to change the world, you just think, I don't know if I would have done it that way, that God would come to the earth in the form of a baby, grow up to be a sinless man who would be put to death by the authorities, both civil and religious, raised to life again after three days, and then ascended to heaven after spending time with his disciples, appearing again to his disciples. <laughs> Think about it. What's been presented to us here, how outlandish it is. And we've done nothing to deserve that. It comes because of the initiation of the love of God. And then you think about what it brings. All things, because of the gospel, belong to you. It goes beyond leadership. It goes beyond anything you're facing in this life, the world, life, death, present, things to come, all of that. And to me, all of those things add up to freedom. And I'm reminded, and it's probably because I work in a middle school, that whenever you, have, you give people freedom, freedom must be matched by responsibility. Um, I know, because I've seen it in the world of my middle school, it's true, not just middle schoolers, but most of what I know, I know from watching middle schoolers, because we're not that different, the rest of us. We like to set them aside and think they're somehow crazy. Mm -mm. Uh, they teach us, we've all got that in us. The things above that blue line all add up to freedom. And where there's great freedom, it needs to be matched by great responsibility. And if you go to the next slide, Terry, it's this idea that the great responsibility becomes because of who we belong to. We belong to Christ, and he belongs to God. I told you I was going to give you two mathematical concepts, 70% and two times. Here they are. I probably spent more time researching this than I should have. 70% according to most research out there, you could find some people who quibble with this on the internet, but 70% represents the amount of all lottery winners who have gone bankrupt. Different research shows this over different time periods. Some people would quibble and say, no, it's only about a third, but the most common statistic out there is 70%. And then two times, that represents, as you can see, the rate of bankruptcy of lottery winners each year relative to the general population. Think about that one for a second. That's a pretty small pool of people winning the lottery. And they're going bankrupt twice as often as the rest of us, which is a pretty big pool of people. Really small sample, two times as much as the rest of us. Now, how about you? Every once in a while, I see the news headline and it's a $250 million Powerball or whatever. I've never bought a lottery ticket. I'm not saying that as a statement of personal holiness in front of all of you, and I'm not here to shame anybody that's ever done that. But I'll tell you, my mind's gone there and think, oh, that would be so cool. $500 million. Oh, that would be great. And then I read a statistic like this, and I think, these knuckleheads. You got $300 million and it's gone in five years? How does a person do that? And it's so easy for me to judge them. So easy for me to judge them. I'll think, you did nothing to earn that money and you squandered it. And my goal right now is just to be honest about what can rise up in me. 
It's not to shame them. Because here's what I want to tell you about these two statistics in light of the gospel. I think, and I confess to you, that I'm a lot more like that 70% in two times than I'd like to admit when it comes to taking care of the reality of the gospel given to me. I was blown away as I read again what Paul says to us, that it belongs to all things belong to us, all things. We've been given this incredible gift. I didn't even have to buy a $2 ticket to get it. It just came to me because of God's goodness, his loving kindness, his faithfulness. And God help us, help me to realize the precious gift we have that we might not squander the opportunity to make the most of it, that we would not be like the 70% and two times lottery winners who squander these incredible, incredible things that are given. So I want to finish and just leave these verses up. Take a good look, church. You called out group of people, called out to be a temple, to be the place, the source, the place where the image of God is revealed to humanity, that we would remember that the image of God carries with it this incredible gift that lets us speak over all things because of who we belong to. We belong to Jesus, to Christ, and he belongs to God. May we release our petty preferences. May we loosen the grip that we sometimes have on our personal partial picks and instead live with an open hand of grace, of hope, of joy, of gratitude, that we might show that image to the world around us. And may we daily respond to the gospel, sowing those seeds that will bear good fruit. As we close, I'm going to pray for us. 